Does adultery cancel marriage? Carlo Broussard, next. Hello and welcome to Focus, the Catholic Answers podcast for living, understanding, and defending your Catholic faith. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. In practice, we Catholics and Protestants probably don't live very differently when it comes to marriage. I don't, I don't know what the statistics are, but it would seem to be very similar. But doctrinally, we are quite different when it comes to marriage. Catholics hold the view that a marriage once constituted can never be sundered. Protestants, not all, but many, hold the view that, no, there's an exception to this, and it's in Matthew's gospel when Jesus says that in the case of adultery, except in a case of adultery. In other words, a marriage is indissoluble except in a case of adultery. Is that true? Well, that's one of the challenges Carlo takes on in his book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. And when I say Carlo, of course, I mean Carlo Broussard, and here's what he has to say about marriage. Carlo Broussard, pretty good apologist. Thanks for being with us here. You, Thank you, Cy. You objected to extraordinaire last time, so I went with pretty good apologies. Pretty good apologists. You're, will, you're willing and to accept that? And working on it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, all right, last time we talked about one of these uh, Catholic-Protestant problems uh, regarding the priesthood. Um, there's also a difference uh, between Catholics uh, and most of the Orthodox and Protestants regarding marriage. Right. And exactly what Jesus taught about marriage. So yeah. we'll, we'll tackle that this time. All right. Let's do it. Okay. So the the the, the tradition of the church is um, that marriage is indissoluble. Right. Uh, the catechism teaches that while spouses are living a a new marital union cannot be recognized as value. Excuse me, as valid if the first marriage was. So as long as the two spouses are who entered into a marriage are alive, you can't have this one validly marry. Someone right. else. That's paragraph 1650 in the catechism. Those who attempt civil marriage after divorce, therefore, find themselves in a situation that objectively contravenes God's law. The church bases this teaching on Jesus' words in Matthew, excuse me, Mark, uh, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and she divorces her husband and marries another. She commits adultery. That seems really, really clear. But but uh, Saint Matthew uh, decided to help us out, <laughs> and so we. This is where the the problem is. So here's the Protestant challenge right. to, to that reality. How can the Church teach what we just articulated in paragraph six, paragraph sixteen fifty of the Catechism when, when the Matthew Bible says, yeah, right, when the Bible says in Matthew's Gospel chapter nineteen verse nine, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, so since Jesus puts except for unchastity, that, doesn't that mean a man who divorced his wife and married another wouldn't be committing adultery if the wife had committed infidelity in the marriage? That's right. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the challenge. And I must admit, you know, like on the surface, it would seem, well, wait a minute, Jesus seems to be making an exception here, right? Right. Man divorces his wife, marries another, he's going to commit adultery, except for that case 
right. that we're calling unchastity here in this translation. Some might say except for adultery, or right. as our Protestant brothers and sisters will often interpret it, except for adultery, or yeah. except for spousal infidelity. But, but okay, that, I want to ad- completely admit that one s- sees an objection here, but it's also true that none of the other Gospels make any exception. That is true. We okay. only have it in Matthew, and that's so, going to come into play yeah. through our conversation. Whenever we're reasoning through this and, and right. doing some exegesis here, that tidbit, right, this yeah. extra tidbit that Matthew includes in his gospel is going to come to light as to why he would include this extra tidbit right. when we go through our conversation. Okay. All right. So um, let's talk about that. You, you said unchastity or adultery might not be the best way to actually translate this. Right. Well, adultery, I would argue that adultery is not what Jesus is referring to, to here. And this is the tradition of the church in interpreting this passage. So I think there are two major approaches that we can take here in responding to this passage. Number one, I think it's more of a negative approach yeah. where we want to give some reasons why Jesus can't mean adultery. So we're going to say, no, Jesus is not meaning adultery. Why is that? And we're going to give some reasons why. But then our second approach is more positive, where we're going to offer a positive explanation as to what we think Jesus means here when he says, except for unchastity, and why we think that. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's just the lay of the land. So what are some reasons why we shouldn't take this to mean adultery? Well, number one, The Greek word for unchastity here is important, so we're going to introduce the Greek word, and I'll just keep referring to that Greek word with regard to this exception clause here, right? Right. The Greek word for unchastity is porneia, from which we get the English word pornography, Pornography. right? So now the Greek word porneia can refer, you know, sometimes refers to fornication, but more generally just sexual immorality, Sexual immorality in general, which could include adultery, right? So the, 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 the general concept of parnea could include adultery. But what's interesting is that's not the word Matthew uses when he's referring to adultery. In fact, in the very same passage, Matthew uses a word for adultery. Oh, yeah, that's but right, because he, he says he commits, commits adultery. He commits adultery, right. And the Greek word is mokaio. So Matthew right. himself is is using two distinct words here, except for porneia. Yeah. And then he says morkaio when referring to adultery. That's pretty clear then. He's not, if you use two different words basically in the same sentence, you're not talking about the same thing. Well, you want to be careful with that because Matthew also uses two distinct words and refers to the same thing in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, you are Petros, when Jesus says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. So you want to be careful with that reasoning, Cy. Okay, so even less than a pretty good apologist (laughs) on this side. Okay, so it is true that we have two distinct words here, but here's our supporting evidence that Matthew is referring to two different things with these two different words. Because everywhere else in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew refers to spousal infidelity, he uses mokayo. Okay. The only time in Matthew where porneia is being used and it's being like debated whether or not it's used as adultery is right here. Every other time when Matthew uses it, it's a different word. It's mokaio. So, for example, in um, – in, okay, so we got the same passage here. Whoever divorces his wife except for in chastity marries another commits adultery, mokaite. 
And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, mokaite. So that's Matthew uh, chapter 19, verse 9. But in chapter 5, verse 27, he uses moikuo to refer to the exterior act of adultery, right? And then in verse 28, he broadens the concept of adultery to include lust, referring to the interior act of adultery, using the same word, you know, so if you lust after woman, you commit adultery. And then in chapter, in verse 32 of the same chapter, Matthew 5, 32, in reference to the husband making his wife an adulteress by divorcing her, same word is being used there. So if Matthew thought that Jesus was talking about spousal infidelity, like adultery, Providing an exception to his teaching on divorce, if that's what Jesus, if that's what Matthew thought Jesus was referring to, well, then why doesn't he use the word that he always uses when he's referring to spousal infidelity? Okay. You see? Yeah. But he doesn't. He uses another word. So given the background of his common use of this word, mokayo, for for spousal infidelity— and that he doesn't use it here is a strong indication that he's t- he's thinking, Matthew's thinking, Jesus is thinking or saying something else, right. talking about something else. Here's what one Bible, Bible scholar, John P. Meyer, writes about this. I, I think he captures it nicely. If Matthew wishes the name adultery as a reason, if Matthew wishes to name adultery as a reason for divorce, he would be almost forced to employ some form of mokaye or the noun to express the concept. Because that's what he uses elsewhere. Every time he's referring to spousal infidelity. Since Matthew doesn't use any form of mokaye, it is a strong indication that he does not think Jesus is referring to spousal infidelity. So that's the first reason why we should think that Jesus is not referring to spousal infidelity when he speaks of this, except for unchastity, except for pernaya clause. Okay? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, here's a second reason, which I find the second and third reason are even stronger, okay? The disciples' reaction to Jesus' teaching would be unintelligible if Jesus were referring to spousal infidelity when pornea is used here. Oh, right, because, okay, so what the disciples say next. Go ahead. Yes. I know where you're going now. Yeah, yeah. So remember, whenever Jesus says, you know, uh, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder— and then in response to this, you know, and then Jesus says, if man puts away his wife, marries another, commits adultery, except for this Pornea case. And then the apostles respond in verse 10, well, Jesus, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it's not expedient to marry. Yeah. Now, notice that reaction. They're like, well, no one should get married now. Right. Now, how could we make sense of that? Well, it's interesting to note that at the time of Jesus, there were two rabbinic schools of thought as to what constituted legitimate grounds for divorce. Okay. You had the Hillel school and the school of Shammai. Hillel, the Hillel school following the Jewish leader, Hillel. Go ahead and divorce. Practically anything, (laughs) right? Yeah. I mean, it could be something as simple, you know, John P. Meyer talks about how it could be as simple as something as burnt food, right? If your wife burns your food, you can get rid of her. Or just some prettier woman you're more attracted to, you get rid of your wife. But then the school of Shammai, on the other hand, they believed that the grounds for divorce and remarriage, emphasis there, is more restrictive, such as spousal infidelity. Okay. And the apostles at the time of Jesus would have already been swimming in those waters of thought, so to speak. Oh, right? sure. They would have been breathing that Jewish 
theological milieu of knowing, you know, the various schools of thought. So in their mind, spousal infidelity was already grounds yeah. for divorce and remarriage. Right, that was the strictest That was law. the strictest, right? right? Yeah. So think about this, Sai. If Jesus were saying, well, you can't divorce and remarry except for a case of spousal infidelity, Th- that, would, that would be nothing new. Right. It would be, well, tell me something I don't already know, Jesus. It would be nothing new under the sun because they were already breathing that theological concept, right? They already right. had it in their mind. Right. So if that's what Jesus meant, like you can, you know, you can't divorce and remarry except for this case of spousal infidelity. Well, then the apostles would have just said, "Well, okay, we already believe that. That's easy enough, right?" But they don't. They actually say, "Well, golly, no, it's not expedient for anybody to marry now." Right. So that reaction indicates that Jesus is giving a new teaching. Yeah. Something that's beyond what the apostles were used to, right? Right. Which included spousal infidelity being grounds for divorce and remarriage. So this indicates that Jesus is not referring to spousal infidelity as grounds for divorce and remarriage, given the fact, assuming that God has joined together man and woman as husband and wife. In other words, that the marriage is valid. So the disciples' reaction constitutes a second reason why we should not conclude that Jesus is referring to spousal infidelity with this exception clause, this Parnea exception clause. So that's the second reason. But there's one more reason. All right, what's that? You ready for it? Yep. Okay. One more reason why we should not. Why we should not. Sort of this okay. negative approach, yeah, right? Gotcha. We're, we're trying to refute the Protestant position of thinking that Parnea adultery. refers to spousal infidelity yeah. or adultery, right? Notice that Jesus distances his view of marriage from the prevailing views among first century Jews. Because remember, this whole conversation is teed up with the question given to him by the Pharisees, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, and yeah. verse 3, did you catch that? Yeah, for is any cause. For any cause? So it seems as if the Pharisees are setting Jesus up to see which school of Jewish thought he's going to side with. Right. Is he going to side with the Hillel school, which would imply, you, which would involve, you can divorce your wife and remarry for any cause, for right. any reason. So the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, are you going to side with the Hillel school? Right. Yeah. Or are you going to side with the Shammai school, which was more restrictive and say, well, spousal infidelity is grounds for divorce and remarriage. But Jesus' response, Sai, indicates that Jesus is siding with neither side. That's right, yeah. Because Jesus' response appeals to the very beginning right. of creation. All the way back to the beginning of the book of Gen- Genesis, yeah. That's right, when Jesus says, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? For they're no longer two, one, uh, no longer two, but one flesh. Here's the key verse. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's the negative. He, right. You know, so the dubium, right? The Pharisees are like approaching Jesus with a dubium, right? Yeah. A question, you know, can a man divorce his wife for any cost? And the implication being, which side are you going to fall on, Jesus, Hillel or Shammai? Jesus is basically saying, neither. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And with that statement, we can see how Jesus is saying, neither school is right. Because on this supposition that what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, neither the Hillel school nor the Shammai school is correct in allowing for divorce 
and remarriage. The implication being that these these causes can dissolve the marital bond. And Jesus saying, not nope. so. So okay. Jesus's negative response to the question is clear indication that he is not referring to spousal infidelity as being grounds for divorce and remarriage. This exception, exceptional case that, well, if a man divorces his wife and marries him another, he wouldn't be committing adultery in this exceptional case, right? Jesus is not referring to spousal infidelity for the reasons that we've articulated here. Okay, so then we want to get into the positive argument, and yep. then what does uh, porneia refer to then? It's got to, I mean, there's not no reason that it's in there. It's there for some reason. That's right. So whenever we look at just porneia in generally as it's used in the New Testament, okay? Okay. It's nor as I mentioned earlier, it refers just generally to sexual immorality. Okay. Now, out of the twenty-five times in the New Testament where it's used, only two of these do scholars even suggest that it's used for adultery. And that's here in Matthew chapter nineteen. Okay? Oh. So only two times. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter I'm not here two times here. It's Matthew five thirty-two and Matthew nineteen nine, because the teaching is repeated in both passages. Okay. okay. But everywhere else, it's not used for adultery. So it's used for fornication. Now, notice that implies sexual immorality outside marriage, not in marriage, right? It refers to incest, which would imply sexual immorality. That is not within a valid marriage. It's not a valid union. Just it's used just generally for sexual immorality, just generally speaking, nothing specific. And then it's used in scripture, for example, in Revelation 14, 8 and Revelation 18, 3, uh, for metaphor metaphorical impure passions, okay? Mm-hmm. Sort of lustful passions. So since we know that porneia can't refer to adultery in Matthew 19, 9, and every time porneia is being used in the New Testament, it's referring to some form of sexual immorality outside of marriage. Well, then it's reasonable to conclude that porneia is being used here by Matthew in Matthew 19.9 to refer to some case that involves illicit sexual activity, right, that's outside of the boundaries of marriage. Some sexual immorality that is not within a union that's valid. Okay. In other words, a sexual immorality that's illicit in that it's not within the boundaries of marriage. So like it would be like if a son married his mother, his stepmother. That's right, right. So that would not be a valid union, right? That would right. not be a valid marriage. And, that, that, right, that's, that's a sexual immorality that actually makes marriage impossible. Right. Because of the, the kind of immorality that it is. Correct, correct. So that part, and then we even have, for example, in Acts chapter 15, Parnea is actually used by the council fathers at the Council of Jerusalem when they've given those precepts that the Gentiles are to not eat meat, they're to not you know, eat meat that's not fully drained of blood, they're not to partake of blood. And then the fourth precept was abstain from Parnea. Well, given that scholars suggest that the three of the four precepts are coming from Leviticus, these are all Levitical precepts, it's reasonable to conclude that the fourth precept that the Council Fathers bind on the Gentiles is coming from Leviticus as well. Well, which Levitical precept within the surrounding context of those other precepts has to do with sexual immorality, incestuous relationships? Oh, okay. So we even have... Precedence in the New Testament of Pernia being used in reference to 
sexual immorality involved in invalid unions, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can have sexual immorality in a valid union, like within marriage and husband and wife fail in chastity, right? And employ their sexual powers in, in, in deviant ways. So you can have sexual immorality in marital unions, real marital, marital unions, and sexual immorality in invalid unions. But pernea throughout the New Testament seems to always be used for this sexual immorality Within invalid unions, right? Unions that are not real marriages to begin with. Yeah, okay. If that is the case, if we're right here, Sai, then what Jesus is teaching us here in Matthew 19, verse 9, is basically the concept of the church's understanding of an invalid marriage. Yeah. Like for, and, the, the, and this provides the rationale as to why it would be such that, it would be the case that if a man puts away his wife and marries another, he would not be committing adultery in the case of Parnea. Why? he's because not married. He wasn't married to begin with. It wasn't a valid union. It was sexual immorality within an invalid union. And if an invalid union, well, then if he marries another woman, it would not be adultery because he's not bound to the woman he engaged in sexual immorality with in the first place. Yeah. And this is the biblical precedence, the biblical basis for the church's understanding of the declaration of nullity, commonly referred to as getting an annulment. Right. Right. Which is basically the church is saying, you were never validly married in the first place. God mm. never joined you and woman together, man and woman together as husband and wife. As such, those two individuals are free to enter into a marriage with another. And that would not be adultery because they're not bound they to the other. They weren't married to begin with. And this seems to be what Jesus is teaching us here. Uh, and and uh, I'm thinking that when Saint, whenever St. Saint Paul talks about marriage, it seems to support this. Because yes. that's what I was referring to when I said a son marry his stepmother because first corinthians 5 yeah, right it talks about in seemingly an incestuous relationship of some sort and, and paul is disapproving of it like he's not saying well they're married so right he's so okay yeah but even i'm glad you brought up saint paul because we can shed some further light upon our interpretation or give further support of our interpretation because in first corinthians 7 saint paul does address the issue of you know splitting up and divorcing, quote-unquote divorcing, in the sense of just not living under the same roof. And he gives the instructions to the Corinthians that if a husband and a wife separate, they either remain separated or they reconcile. Right. He does not give a third option of remarriage. Okay. Of course, he's assuming that the bond is real, that the man and the woman are married, that it's a valid union. And if valid union, then... And physical choices. separation, quote-unquote civil divorce, right? You have two choices. You remain such or you reconcile. But you cannot remarry. Why? Because as Jesus taught, if one is to remarry, when that first union is valid, that would be adultery. Why? Because the person's your spouse, and you're bound to your spouse until the bond dissolves by death which is divine, divinely revealed by St. Saint, by Saint Paul in Romans chapter 7, where he teaches us that to, a, a woman is bound to, a wife is bound to her husband only as long as he lives. Once he dies, 
She's no longer bound, St. Paul teaches us. That implies that the bond, the marital bond that exists, what God has joined together, that dissolves with death of one of the spouses. So in a, in a certain way, there's a kind of irony in that it properly understood that this passage does not in any way conflict with the Catholic teaching about marriage. It actually supports it. Yeah. So, yeah, so rather than contra- our belief contradicting this passage, as Catholics, we can actually look to this passage once properly understood as biblical support for the Catholic understanding that if you divorce and remarry, you're committing adultery, except for a case when that first union was not a real marriage to begin with. So that's not just something we as Catholics are making up. That's coming from Jesus himself. Thank you, Carla. Thank you, Sai. As I said, the truth is there's probably not much difference in practice between Catholics and Protestants. And the wider truth is marriage is in a state of crisis, a profound crisis, as a matter of fact. And we Christians have an obligation to do what we can to help marriages, to help married people, and to build up marriage as an institution so that it can be strengthened. Uh, it's, it's vital but often very, very frail and fragile. So it needs our help. I think we all agree on that part. We may disagree on what Jesus said specifically in, and what he meant in Matthew's gospel with his exception, but uh, I'd rather leave it on a positive note than on a note of disagreement. And that note of agreement is, man, we all need to help marriages along. You can email us, focus at catholic.com, focus at catholic.com. We do need your financial support and you can give it at give catholic.com give catholic.com and when you give in whatever amount you give if you would just leave a little note that says this is for catholic answers focus that will help the money get to us like and subscribe if you're watching on youtube that helps like and subscribe we're growing there on youtube thank you for that we're also growing in the other places where uh, podcasts are available apple spotify stitcher and that's in part because many people have given us those five-star reviews and written a little bit of a review for us if you would do that that would help us grow this podcast. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. See you next time, God willing, right here, Catholic Answers Focus.